Hearing some of that, I'm reminded of an Episcopal church I attended when I was in graduate school. And, you know, you sneak up behind an Episcopalian and you say, the word of the Lord, they'll just say, thanks be to God. You know, just like a... <laughs> you kind of scare them. That you can mess with them doing that. Anyway, um, but after a particularly seedy reading or a disturbing reading, normally you just say, thus ends the reading. Well, somebody had read just a, one of the truly you know, disturbing passages and slipped up and said the word of the Lord. And the church, you know, knee-jerk reaction after all the blood and guts and stuff says, thanks be to God. All except Mrs. Elizabeth Anscombe, who is uh, a starchy New Englander and just, just in a conversational volume, she just said, I don't think I want to thank the Lord for that one. And the service was forfeit from that moment on. I mean, the, the priest continued manfully through the whole service, but, but uh, the cause was lost at that point. Well, there's some pretty tough reading. We've had a great semester exploring what it means to be filled with the Spirit in the biblical context, and I hope I'm not being presumptuous to horn in on Dr. Tennant's series, but no discussion of the Spirit in Scripture is complete without a treatment of the book of Judges. Did you know that the book of Judges, depending on how you count it, but on a, on a legit count, has more references to the Spirit of the Lord than any other book in the Old Testament? Now, it is tied or nearly tied with 1 Samuel, but ironically, the book of Joshua that portrays Israel at its most faithful, most obedient, most effective doesn't have one single reference to the Spirit of the Lord. For some reason, Judges and 1 Samuel dominate on this theme. And then there's a bit of a gap, and it's the book of Isaiah that then will resume the theme. So no understanding of the Spirit in Scripture is really satisfying that hasn't dug into the book of Judges, and it's peculiar and at times disturbing presentation about the Spirit. The author does a lot to guide our thinking as we read the book. I mean, first of all, he gives us these really compelling portrayals of God's servants, the judges, many of whom, though not all, are impelled by the Spirit of the Lord. And so we want to look at those characters today and see what they can show us. A second clue is the author uses some really vivid Hebrew terms. And so I hope it's okay to talk about a Hebrew word or two or four um, or more uh, but the, the terminology used is really important. And also, the author gives us a clear literary structure that gives us a framework for evaluating what we're reading. We get an introduction, first of all, in the book that tells us that this is going to be a book of failure, despair, sin, wrath, judgment, and generally not paying good attention to smart people. Then we get a series of stories in which Israel's repeated sin, they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, leads to oppression under God's wrath for their apostasy, and then they're delivered by a series of leaders who manage to galvanize the people and lead them against the foe, restoring security and stability at least for about 30 minutes. The cycle then repeats and the book wears on and things get worse and worse till you end up with Samson, who's climactic, last deed is his own self-destruction. The Spirit appears in this central section of the book 
Uh, and and uh, that's where we'll spend most of our time. The author then gives us two extended stories in the last five chapters of the book that are absolutely uh, unhinging. They start uh, with an obs- they both start with an obscure private household conflict that doesn't seem to matter to anybody, but it expands into a nationwide crisis and then ends in a ghastly, horrible atrocity. There are no foreign enemies in the last five chapters of the book of Judges. Israel oppresses itself. Thank you very much. Repeatedly, the author reminds us in those five chapters that there was no king in Israel, and twice at the beginning of the section at the end, he adds the line, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this will give us a framework for seeing how the author then weaves the work of God's spirit into this tumultuous era of Israel's life. And so I didn't didn't intend to have three points, but it just kind of broke out that way. Uh, And I want to start with what's obvious. The most obvious work of the Spirit is enlarged effectiveness. The power that is exercised by the judges is power that is imparted to them by God through the gift of the Spirit. And it's interesting to look at the forms that it takes because it's not always stem-winding, you know, mind-blowing, miraculous types of events. In fact, the first one, I think, might be the best. The Spirit provides authentication that goes beyond their credentials. Now, it's a little strange that in the early part of the book, the judges who save Israel, Ehud and Deborah, are not said to be visited by the Spirit. And yet, these judges receive the author's most full and enthusiastic endorsement. But there's no reference to the Spirit. Why? It seems that the issue is authentication. You see, in a tribal society, if you are going to assume leadership, you've got to have certain kind of credentials. You have to be from the right tribe. You have to be from the right clan. You have to be from the right family. You have to be the firstborn, and you've got to be a guy. Those things are required for authentication as a leader. And actually, in the book of Judges, the being a guy part is not completely consistent. Thank the Lord. Or you have to hold some established position that is respected by everything, like being a Levite or something like that. So our first leaders all have this. Ehud, for example, belongs to an elite warrior class within the tribe of Benjamin. He's like a special forces guy or a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger. And everybody knows that Ehud is just this lethal, you know, tough guy. And so he's John Wayne and everybody, or Sylvester Stallone. So nobody's going to question if Ehud says, hey, let's go to battle. You say, yeah, okay, we're going, we're with you. We're doing this. Then there's Deborah. She appears in the story already established as a prophet of God and as the one real judge in the whole book who actually sits under a tree and listens to boring, long legal arguments and works out the details and helps everybody through them. So they're already in a position of leadership. They've already got credentials. But when we come to the rest of the judges, it's very different. Gideon is not kidding. And he is not being humble when he says, my clan is the least in Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. He's not saying, oh shucks, you know, not me. No, he is saying, sorry, not my union. 
Nobody will pay attention to me. Nobody will respect me. I don't have legitimacy. I don't have the credentials. You know how it goes. Uh, I'm reminded of a famous sermon by Tony Campolo where he contrasts Pharaoh and Moses. Have you heard this? And he says, and over here you've got Pharaoh. He's got the titles. And over here is Moses. He's got the testimony. And so that sort of conflict, it's a little artificial, but I think it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of fun. It's tempted to roll with it for a little while, but I won't. Um, Gideon, though, claims to have neither. I don't have credentials, and I'm just sitting here in this wine press afraid of being found. And so he needs something to remove any doubt of his authenticity as a leader. Likewise, Jephthah's got some serious legitimacy problems. He's the illegitimate son of his father, expelled from his home by the real brothers, and he lives in the wilderness as an outlaw leading a group of disenfranchised men, sort of gangster life. And when his people come to him for help, you can sense his doubts as he negotiates with them about what his title's going to be after he wins the battle, if he wins it. But then the Spirit of God comes upon Jephthah, and all questions of his legitimacy fade. The coming of the Spirit gives him an authenticity that goes beyond his lack of credentials. And then there's Samson. Yes, God called him from conception. Yes, he has a lifelong Nazarite vow. But Samson's legitimacy is thrown into doubt by his own behavior. He rejects his family, spurns his people, fraternizes with oppressors, breaks every rule, violates every standard, ignores every taboo. Why would anyone follow this guy? Then the Spirit of God comes on him and authenticates him as a divinely chosen leader in Israel. Now, we don't know how this worked, but evidently certain kinds of behavior, maybe ecstatic behavior, trance-like behavior, I don't know, reciting the alphabet backwards in Latin. We don't know. Something happened when the Spirit of God came on people, these folks with no CV, no portfolio, no claim on power, and everybody stopped and said, that's from God. Now, we don't know what it was precisely, but some sort of authentication happens. It remains mysterious. But friends, the Spirit of God will authenticate your leadership and ministry in those moments when you have nothing to offer in your own support. God typically, thankfully, does call us to do things for which we have training and preparation and, yes, even credentials. But God isn't confined to those things. And sometimes He'll call upon us to do something else, something unexpected. Nobody will believe us. We might not even believe it ourselves. Who am I to try this? Who'd work with somebody as unqualified with me? But the Spirit of God will bear witness with your spirit. He'll authenticate you to others. You won't need to be desperately trying to prove yourself or win friends or influence people. The Spirit of God will authenticate you in the lives of other people who will know that you've been touched by God to lead. He will authenticate you when you have no credentials. He'll also give you an influence beyond your charisma. Now, this authentication I was talking about is very evident in these stories. Remember, the Israelites, they're hiding in caves. They are, they're, they're checking, you know, somebody says, we need to raise an army. Somebody says, you know, I got a babysitter. I need to go check. Excuse me. I'll be right back. Or, you know, nobody shows up for anything. You know, they're, they're in the, the story of Gideon, it says that they actually go up into the mountains and they hide in caves and and all these places, you know, I don't want to go, I don't want to be there. But all of a sudden, 
when the Spirit of God moves on these people, folks show up in droves. In fact, Gideon raises such a big army after the Spirit comes on him that not only should the Midianites be afraid, God is a little afraid. God is thinking, you know what? If he goes with that crowd of people, they're never going to believe I did this for them. Like 200,000 people or something. So, so God says, Gideon, we're going to cut this group down a little bit. So Gideon suddenly has an influence that goes way beyond a guy hiding in a wine press ought to have. He has an influence that goes beyond his charisma. Same thing with Jephthah. I don't like Jephthah very much. He's a nasty, moody, bitter guy who's, who's always just, and I just imagine him just going, yeah, yeah, that's what I'd say. But Jephthah suddenly, when the Spirit of God comes on him, he is able to travel through the country and raise an army. A charisma, an influence beyond your charisma. And of course, the one that's obvious, the Spirit gives effectiveness beyond our abilities. I'm impressed at how few actual miracles, properly so-called, appear in Judges. What seems to happen is a kind of synergy between the leader, the people, and the hand of God. And so with Gideon, he gets this crazy idea of a strategy. Now, to get, he starts off, he, he's trying to figure out, you know, if God is with him, does all these signs, and God finally says, look, just go over there and do some reconnaissance. So Gideon goes over and he's outside a tent. He hears this Midianite telling about a dream he's had. I don't know what this guy had for dinner, but he says, uh, I was having this dream and there came this great big old matzo ball bouncing through the camp and it destroyed us all. And you know, and his partner should have said, man, you are not having pizza again, ever. You know, the attack of the killer dinner roll is what I call that, you know, or the big Pillsbury Doughboy, you know, coming through the Philistine camp, or the, the Midianite camp, whoever they were. Um, interchangeable enemies in the book of Judges. But after that, Gideon gets all excited, and he comes up with this nutball strategy. I've got an idea. You know, you've got to be scared when a country boy says that, you know. <laughs> Watch this, his last words as he goes out to his pickup truck. But Gideon says, we're going to put torches in, these, in these, these bowls here, and we're going to hold them up, and we're all going to holler, and we're going to break them. And it's going to scare them to death, and they're going to run away, and they're going to kill each other. I'm seeing everybody thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great plan, Gideon. <laughs> Seriously, trust me, you know. Well, anyway, that's another way. You get down to 300 guys, you know, and they're thinking, what have we got to lose? So they do it, and it works. Effectiveness beyond their abilities. Um, then Jephthah just gathers an army and moves out. We don't hear anything except that it says God gave him the victory. With Samson, something that we miss, we're so preoccupied with his actual physical uh, virtuosity, we forget about this guy's unbelievable improvisational ability. I mean, you know, he's like, what am I going to do? And he, and he sees a dead donkey, okay? And he goes, I can use that. And he picks up and rips out a jawbone, and he starts whacking away with that thing. Now, that's improvisation. Um, so the, the power of God to multiply their effectiveness doesn't just always take the form of, of just the miraculous. Sometimes it's a crazy idea. Sometimes it is Samson's wild impulse. Sometimes it's something over the top. But through it all, the Spirit gives an effectiveness beyond abilities.
And the key is the Spirit takes whatever the servant does and multiplies their effectiveness. Whether it's a rush of amazing creative ideas, simple organization, quick thinking, the Spirit does this. Do I need to footnote the entire book of Acts here? I hope not. Do I need to footnote the first, say, 300 years of the life of the church in which a couple of nutcases in a Jewish sect looked at each other and said, you know, I think the whole world will go for this. And somebody said, I think you're right. Well, let's try it. You know, they'll kill us, but I don't think they can kill us fast enough to make up for the folks that follow us. Well, that's true. And so the movement spreads over the whole world. And when the Roman Empire collapses, the church is there. So the power of effectiveness extended. And that's, that's the power part. Another thing the Spirit does in the book of Judges, I just call the power of enhanced experience. What's impressive about all this talk about the Spirit of the Lord um, is uh, the way that it's described in the narrative. Now scholars debate, rightfully, whether or not the Spirit of the Lord in Judges and 1 Samuel is to be equated directly with the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice in context of book of Judges, I don't refer to the Spirit of the Lord as the Holy Spirit. Because the connection with the third person of the Trinity is accomplished by a long narrative arc in which a lot of things happen. And so I'd like to suggest that this is the first outing of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God 1.0. And we're going to have several iterations of the Spirit of God by the time we get to the book of Acts and have the full-blown revelation of the Holy Spirit. To be sure, the portrayal is limited, and we've got a long way to go to get from the book of Judges to the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes Judges will feel more like Corinth. Uh, but Judges gives us at least four different terms to express the reality of the Spirit's presence, and I think these are worth noting. Now, the first phrase is really tricky to translate because it's just too simple. We see it with Othniel and Jephthah. You could translate it, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel just like a static little friend that Othniel has all the time. But the verb to be in Hebrew does not normally or typically just mean a sort of static kind of presence. More often than not, it refers to an occurrence, an event. The old translation, it came to pass. It happened. And so it's also the idiom used when the divine word comes to a prophet. The word of the Lord was to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It's an event, a moment, a definite experience. It points to an arrival. The Spirit, believe it or not, isn't shy. The Spirit doesn't want to slip in the back door unnoticed. Nobody would be unaware in the Old Testament if the Spirit of God was upon somebody. The Spirit is a definite arrival. Now, in the Gideon story, we have another expression. <clears throat> and again, I could yell at translators all day, but since I am one, I'd rather not. In Judges 6.34, we find an expression that uses the language of clothing. Some of the translations say, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I imagine the Spirit of the Lord as Gideon's tailor. You know, you know I think that a sharp lapel with you looks better than the European, but I don't know, what do you, the drape of the shoulder, you know, this, what is the Spirit, dressing him or something? And so some translations just punt and say the Spirit of the Lord possessed Gideon. But the verb that's used there, whenever it has a direct object, the meaning is simple. It means to put something on. 
When the object is a ring, it means to put the ring on. When the object is a coat, it means put the coat on. So here it says the Spirit of God put on Gideon. Gideon's not wearing the Spirit. The Spirit's wearing Gideon. Now in the ancient Near East, they believed that the gods had a radiant, shining garment that they put on when they went into battle that would just dazzle their enemies and and astound them and, and show their presence powerfully. Well, the Spirit of Yahweh has got Gideon as his shining, glorious garment, the sign of his presence. Now, I think that is really amazing that the Spirit of God would clothe Gideon, and Gideon is the garment. Gideon now goes with the Spirit, goes, let's face it, if you go somewhere right now, your shirt is going with you, I hope. (laughs) Once the Spirit wears Gideon, Gideon goes where the Spirit goes. Gideon does what the Spirit does. Gideon duplicates the work of the Spirit. Gideon would now be the shining, bright manifestation of the Spirit's presence. Now, the third phrase is more striking than that, and it's found in the Samson story, and it has this dramatic sense. And, I, you know, here you've got to really be careful because the word gets used so many times as temptations just to pile them all up. Uh, but it has the idea of kind of a slashing through, a penetrating, a driving forward. It, it describes Joshua in the conquest of Canaan, that he just rips through the land. Samson experiences not just the arrival or the indwelling of the Spirit, but rather the Spirit slashes through him and penetrates his deepest being, overwhelms him, commandeers him. Not just an arrival, not just an indwelling, it's an invasion. Friends, when we yield to the Spirit and let Him into our lives, we better get ready. He doesn't take sides. He takes over. He's not a guest in our life. He's the owner. He's not a passenger. He's going to drive. And we need to be prepared for that. His overwhelming presence. Now, all this is glorious. Who wouldn't want to know all that in our lives? But there's one more term I want to look at with you. It's the first mention of the Spirit in Samson's life, right at the end of Judges 13, in the transition between Samson's birth narrative and his active life, it says, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. But the idea here really isn't stirring like moving him. The Hebrew term is pa'am, and it's, I always can't pronounce this, onomatopoeic, I think that's correct, and as it sounds like what it is, it's their equivalent of the word boom. That's a pa'am. The Spirit of God began to pound Samson. When Pharaoh has his nightmare that he tells to Joseph, he says, it pa'ams me. It pounds me. Nobody ever gets pa'amed and it's being a good thing. The Spirit of God is pounding. There is something agonistic here, something contentious, something disturbing Samson is going to be mightily used by God to accomplish amazing feats, but Samson will always be in conflict with his mission. And like that other spirit-energized character, Saul, he will end uh, by his own hand. He will be a self-sacrifice. Saul will be a suicide. But Samson will end badly, even though he is by far the most spirit-filled character in the book of Judges. Which brings me to the whole point of this sermon. The main point in the way the book of Judges presents the Spirit of God. 
I note with alarm, and, and everybody does, how the references to the Spirit increase in parallel with how troubling the judges become. A Spirit-inhabited leader like Gideon will bail on his responsibility to lead his people. A Spirit-endowed warrior will destroy his daughter and decimate his own people. And now the most Spirit-filled man in almost the whole Old Testament is best known for his immorality and self-destruction. This brings me to the third thing I want to stress in this message. What Judges is saying is right in front of our eyes. Power, even the power of the Spirit of God, is not enough. Power gets stuff done, but power doesn't always mean that the right thing gets done. Power makes an impression but power does not transform. Power alone cannot accomplish the will of God. So there's something in each of these three final judges, the three most conspicuous for their empowerment by the Spirit, that points to uh, some dimensions of life that really can't be addressed by power and aren't addressed in their lives. First, Gideon. The whole story of Gideon is shot through with this kind of ambivalence. I mean, some of it is superficial, Sometimes he seems to be the humble servant of God. Sometimes he seems to be a hard-hitting, tough-talking warlord or an Old West Marshal. He's got two names, one that refers to Baal. But most importantly, at the end of the story, Gibson fails in the end. His people desperately need more than just a deliverer, more than just a mighty man. They need more than just power. They need a leader, somebody to help them move forward in God's purpose. They naturally then approach Gideon. Gideon, after all of his successes, will fail. He turns away from the responsibility of leading the very people who by the power of the Spirit he has delivered. He hides from his responsibility behind a dubious notion of theocracy. He takes the gold they have won in battle and forms from it something the writer calls an ephod. It is simply a a sort of an icon that they would use to seek after God's will. So they've made up a new component of Israelite worship just out of the blue for no good reason. The author tells us of this ephod. It says, I can't resist the King James Version, and Israel went thither a-whoring after it. Gideon's expression of piety leads to idolatry. Then in his retirement, uh, Instead of uh, following continued service, Gideon fathers a child by a Shechemite concubine, a man who would grow up to become Israel's real first king, Abimelech, and a savage, brutal tyrant he would be. All the power of the Spirit that coursed through Gideon's life was not sufficient for this moment because the moment Gideon faced was not a moment about power. It was a moment about character. Gideon has this inner lack of resolve, an inner dividedness that keeps him from embracing the continuing unfolding of his calling. His inner divisiveness sabotages his success. Friends, we need more than power. Like Gideon, we're people with an inner dividedness, an inner ambivalence, a double-mindedness that no amount of power will change. The book of Judges is pointing us to a relationship with God by the Spirit that looks beyond power. 
to a wholehearted, single-minded resolve to follow the will of God wherever it leads and whatever roles He calls us to, facing whatever responsibilities He places in our hands. And this isn't about power. This is about character. Then there's Jephthah, the second example. So much is said and written about Jephthah that either isn't true or isn't clear or misses the point. But this is a man deeply used by the Spirit. But he makes a vow, an extreme vow, that ends up with a catastrophic conclusion that destroys Jephthah's family. And remember, this is a man who started out rejected by his family. And now Jephthah turns then on his fellow Israelites, the tribe of Ephraim. They're the prima donnas. I don't like them either. I understand Jephthah. Whenever there's a battle, they complain that they weren't first. They didn't get to go first. Gideon kind of settles them down a little bit, a little diplomacy there, controlling his anger and frustration at some dumb stuff they had done in the battle. But Jephthah just lets it go. He unleashes his fury on them and annihilates thousands of Ephraimites. More Israelites die at Jephthah's hand than die in the rest of the book of Judges combined. What's Jephthah's problem? In a way, it's power. He never lets go of his need to control. Rejected by his kinsmen, when they seek him out, he's bitter and resentful. He bargains them into giving him more power than they really want to give. The Spirit comes on him and he makes his crazy vow. Well, what's that vow about? Jephthah needs to be in control. He's obligated his people. Now he wants to obligate God and control the outcome. When you live for control, you always end up bitter. You always end up destroying the very things you thought you loved, the things you worked the hardest to preserve. Because when we live for control, we hand our happiness over to other people. If they won't be controlled, now we can't be happy. So what do we do? One way or the other, we destroy them. That's the the problem of control. Against this kind of bitterness, this refusal to unclench that fist, no amount of power will prevail. For all of his enabling and empowering by the Spirit, for all his triumphs, Jephthah is the first judge of whom it is said at the end of his career, it is not said that the land had rest. How could it rest? Their leader destroyed his own household, destroyed a tribe of Israel, all in the name of control. Judges takes us beyond power. It makes us ask if there's a relationship with the Spirit of God in which we move beyond power to a release of our bitterness, a relenting from our need to control, to obligate others, to coerce and sway not just people, but even God. The author of Judges acts like he doesn't know the answer. Can the Spirit of God melt a bitter heart? Can the Spirit of God open the clenched fist of an ironclad ego that won't let go of the reins? An ego that says, I'll serve God, but I'll serve in my way on my terms. Around such a person, like Jephthah, is a blast zone of alienation, loss, despair, and death. Power is not enough. We need something that will dissolve that rock of self-will and enable us to embrace those that rejected us, reconcile with those who dispute and resist our leadership, bring healing where a toxic legacy is dominated, and power won't do it. Then there's Samson. Again, a lot of silliness goes around about Samson. Samson isn't stupid. Let's get on the record with that. 
He's portrayed as a propounder of riddles. In the ancient world, riddling was high intellectual sport. Propounding riddles marks you as intelligent, intuitive, articulate, sophisticated, and the life of the party. So Samson isn't some country bumpkin who comes to town and falls for the bright lights and the painted ladies and regrets it the next morning. Nor does he have a weakness for women. His first marriage, however wrong, was a sincere experience of love, albeit forbidden. And then God used that to open the door for Samson to harass the Philistines, totally threw them off their game, and spoiled their plans for dominating Israel in the south. And then in Judges 14 and 15, events that occur in rapid succession and don't take up much time, when that's done, it looks like 20 years then go by uneventfully. And at the end of his career, Samson stumbles, turns to a prostitute, and then to the infamous Delilah. But, in carefully, but looking carefully at neither of these stories does Samson seem a blind, helpless male led along by lust. When he's attacked at Gaza, he stands up, makes a wreck of the city gate, and carries a big chunk of it all the way up to Hebron. That's a long way. It's a long way to drive, much less walk carrying a big old part of a gate. And so Samson clearly sees himself as totally in control here. And also in the encounter with Delilah, he's riddling again. He's pushing the limits of his secret. And after three times, he knows, we know, that Delilah's going to do whatever he says. It looks like Samson has come to believe that even the cutting of his hair will not actually rob him of his strength. I mean, he wasn't supposed to touch dead stuff, but he ate honey from a lion and still had his strength. Wasn't supposed to deal with alcohol, but he banquets with the Philistines and doesn't lose his strength. So why should cutting the hair be any different? And so when Delilah cries out, the Philistines are upon you, Samson says, well, I'll just deal with them the way I always have. And then the writer pushes pause and looks at us. He says, Samson didn't know the Lord had left him. Whoa. I don't know about you, but when I read that, something in my chest just drops. Samson didn't know the Lord had left him. What was his real issue? Well, he's not stupid. He's not a slave to lust. It's obvious. Samson lived his whole life under a vow to God, but he's never really surrendered to God. The whole thing was something done before he was born. A vow is a word spoken over him. He didn't have any say in. Samson complies with it, more or less, but otherwise he lives his own life and follows his own impulses. Samson does what Samson wants to do. And when Samson wants to do it, and with whomever Samson wants to do it, Samson believes he's totally in control of his life. In the midst of the conflicts with the local Philistines, there's this revealing statement in chapter 15. Samson says, I will surely take revenge on you, but after that, I'll quit. Yeah. What addict hasn't said, this is the last time. (laughs) Just this one time, then I'm done. It's the words of somebody who thinks they're in charge, they're in control. Samson's smart, sophisticated, gifted, and completely enslaved to his impulses, to his need for risk, his need to prove that he can do it and get away with it. Unsurrendered ego. And you know what's coming. Against unsurrendered ego, power is useless. The power of the Spirit will work through Samson to great effect, but his own life, his own character, all his relationships are destroyed by his narcissistic, unsurrendered, selfish ego. 
Here we can even say that extreme religious practices weren't enough. The Nazarite vow was the apex of spiritual formation in ancient Israel. And he had a PhD in Nazarite vows. I mean, he was a lifetime Nazarite. Not even spiritual disciplines will get you there. Somewhere in theology, might have been Augustine, might have been Luther, definitely Bart. Somebody coined a Latin phrase, in curvatus in se, a life that is incurved upon itself, closed in on itself. Everything is seen by reference to oneself. Behind the abdication of responsibility in Gideon, behind the clenched and bitter fist of Jephthah, behind the arrogant swagger of Samson, lurks a heart that is closed in on itself, never fully yielded to the transformation God offers. And the book of Judges will go on after the Samson story to give us those five horrible chapters to make this point. And it will say the problem isn't that they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord and they worshipped other gods. There's something worse than idolatry in the book of Judges. Not the worship of false gods, the worship of me. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes is directly parallel to they did what was evil in Yahweh's eyes. And so the writer's telling us, we had these guys who delivered us from our enemies, but who's going to deliver us from ourselves? Who is going to deliver us from the citadel of self? The prophet Isaiah will take up this topic when he speaks of the servant, and he will use a very different kind of language. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Do you hear those character words? Yes, strength is in there for sure. But did you hear all those character words? Then Isaiah 11 will celebrate not just the power of the spirit, but the moral transformation that comes from the spirit's work. Righteousness, peace, faithfulness, reconciliation. And it ends with a stunning promise they, meaning everybody on the planet, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Samson didn't know anything about that kind of talk. Just wanted to work and I kill me a Philistine. And then later on in Isaiah, God will speak repeatedly of this servant as one upon whom he places his spirit. And that will become, in, in Isaiah 61, then will become Jesus' life verse that he shares in the synagogue. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The chapter paints a picture of joy and healing and thriving and integrity and justice and equity and holiness and joy. Boy, no wonder Jesus chose that as his life verse. God ultimately wants to see us transformed into the image of Jesus, imbued with holiness, filled with love, and devoted to servanthood. And you can spend your whole life without ever performing a single deed of power. And you can be filled with holiness and righteousness. And you can walk into the presence of one who will embrace you and say, well done, good and faithful. You remember that parable Jesus told about the goats and the sheep? The goat said, but 
but Lord, we look at the miracles. We cast out demons. We did all this sensation. We did it in your name, man. And Jesus says, he doesn't say, no, you didn't. So you guys are bogus. No, he, he, he leaves all that. And he says, I didn't know you. What? You mean doing powerful stuff in Jesus' name doesn't get me into heaven? Nope. And then the sheep, they got no clue. Remember, Jesus says, you all did all this stuff, and, and they're saying, Jesus, I think a file got mixed up. We, we didn't do any of that stuff. They didn't participate in a single work of power in their entire lives. And Jesus says, huh, you all are my people. I know you. I don't know these guys over here. It's really important to realize power is not the principal standard by which God will evaluate our work. Not the sensational, not the numerical, not the quantitative. Those things have a place. They matter. But the book of Judges wants to know that the Spirit gives power, but it warns us that the power of the Spirit is not adequate to accomplish God's purposes. We are to seek after a relationship with God in which with surrendered egos we let go of our needs for control, our bitterness, our desire to get even. We let God open up our fatally incurved hearts and spirits. We're filled not just with the spirit of power that rips through us, but with the spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And Paul tells us that stuff is unstoppable. More than power, we need purity. More than accomplishments, we need character. More than tremendous drama, we need true devotion. More than spectacular results, we need surrendered wills. More than big, we need good. More than sensations, we need sanctification. And beyond high performance, we need holiness. So what are we seeking after? We have been too long, too preoccupied with big stuff, expensive stuff, lots of stuff, spectacular stuff. The validity of your ministry is not a function of the size of the parking lot, but rather the depth of life that is growing in that church. A wise person said to me when I was in college, Stone, you worry about the depth of your ministry and let God worry about the breadth. You can take that to the bank. 